I'm Matsudiso, a musician, songwriter, producer and composer. I also teach. I'm fascinated by process, how we make what we make, why we make what we make. As a musician, I'm always learning from and inspired by other creatives, other musicians, artists, the arts itself, people. In short, life all inform the music I make. And I think that learning from others enriches not only our own art, but the arts. And why holding up the ladder? Well, because we're all trying to get somewhere and I think we build something stronger if we help each other. If we hold up the ladder rather than pull it up from under us as we climb. I'll be talking to all kinds of creatives about process, lessons learned, things that inspire us, the music we're listening to, what makes us who we are and the help we've had along the way. So join me as we climb, holding up the ladder. How does your garden grow? Silver bells and cockle shells and pretty maids all in a row. Very, very quite contrary. How does your garden grow? Silver bells and cockle shells and pretty maids all in a row. Pretty maids all in a row. One of the things I love most about music isn't just the making it, but the relationships I've made because of it. In fact, I can't separate the two. To me, everything is relational. The people I've met through music have become some of my most cherished friendships. It's a very unique thing, hard to explain sometimes, but it's indelible, like a tattoo. And so, I want to tell you about a person that has embedded themselves under my skin, someone who held up the ladder for me, someone I met through music who became a dear, dear friend. It's the story of my friend Ian Tootill. He was my bass player. You just heard him on that track, How Does Your Garden Grow, taken from my first EP. He became my close friend and roommate, became the first man with cancer to climb Mount Everest and passed away from that cancer two years ago. Because by now you know how much I love storytelling, this episode will be slightly different in that I will tell you about our friendship through story, but you'll hear clips of real interactions, you'll hear excerpts of jam sessions we had in the living room and our WhatsApp exchanges while he was in Tibet. This isn't a story about cancer, it's a story about friendship and it's a story about music. Our first meeting was through a photograph a tall, lanky man playing an upright bass. He was showing a little girl, a friend's daughter, how to play. I had trained as a lawyer, but decided to pursue my passion and become a full-time musician. I'd been secretly writing songs for years on the same piano I'd had since I was seven. To ease my way into performance, like easing my body into a cold swimming pool, I started hosting gigs from the safety of my living room inviting supportive friends who would hoop and clap with the same enthusiasm as parents at their children's school play. A simple trio, me on piano and vocals, a percussionist and a bass player. Ian, or Toots, as he was known to his friends, an abbreviation of his surname Tootil, 
was softly spoken with a Sheffield accent. Think Sean Bean's character, Lord Eddard Stark from Game of Thrones. He had a shock of platinum blonde hair and a brilliant sense of humour. He had a penchant for logoed t-shirts, a Sheffield Wednesday soccer club owl tattoo on his right upper arm and played the bass with black woolly gloves. It wasn't so much a fashion choice as a circulation problem. Playing with gloves kept his hands warm. He needed loosening up in the early stages. I distinctly remember the first hug we had, not something that's usually memorable for me. I remember it because of how rigid he was. Ian's forearms came up by his side, 90 degrees at the elbow, and then extended forward like robotic arms, as if someone had pressed a switch at the elbow joint but not at the shoulder blade to fully activate a real human embrace. Like most musicians, we spent hours talking about music. It was food to us. He loved Sting, Dominic Miller, Level 42. We talked about great maverick bass players, Michelle Degocello, Marcus Miller, Jaco Pastorius, Avishai Cohen and Richard Bonner, or Borner, as he would pronounce it with his Sheffield accent, the emphasis on the O. We'd talk about song arranging, meticulously deconstructing album production. A solitary man with a quiet sadness you could sometimes feel, or maybe it was loneliness, or maybe it was both. Ian started to learn the bass in the army, he was reluctant to tell me at first. People make assumptions about you, he said. They treat you differently after they find out. He joined at 16. It was the only way to get out of Sheffield, he confessed. Discovering this part of his life made sense to me. It made sense of his personality. You see, us musicians can have a reputation for being flaky, but he was always present always going above and beyond, like the time he got hit by a bus because he was distracted trying to convince my then percussionist not to quit our gig for a better paid offer. He was safe. I trusted him. He was known as Toots, Tooty Man, Ian, Mountain Man, Wild Man. I was known as Mo, Lass, Mrs Mo, Matsy, Momo, Mum. He called snacks, Nibble, Eggs, Eggy Weggies, Going after your dreams was get after it. He had an obsession with cheese, particularly fondue. If he liked the taste of something, he would bring his hands to the side of his mouth, wiggle his fingers and say nom nom nom. Think Sesame Street's cookie monster and his cookie obsession. We were an unlikely pair. He a down-to-earth northerner. Where I grew up, everything I ate was white, mo. White bread, white cheese, white potatoes, he said. And me a slightly aloof Londoner. It was music that brought us together. We would never have found each other otherwise. And it was music that gave way to a friendship that would change our lives forever. Oh, pants, my startup just is almost full. No! I need to buy a hard drive.
got bowel cancer, Mo, but I'm going to beat it. Of course you are, Toots. I have no doubt in my mind. He called me up one evening to tell me he had mentioned that he was going into hospital for tests a few weeks before, but because it was Ian, I didn't think it would be serious. He was invincible. And because it was Ian, if anyone could beat it, he could. And beat it, he did, on a diet of zero carbs, zero sugars, avocados and Brazil nuts for the fat, smoothies comprising of garlic, spinach, ginger and an unflinching determination. A year or so later, the cancer had gone, the doctors finding only scar tissue. But recovery wasn't as straightforward as he'd hoped. What was that all for? he asked one afternoon as we met up for coffee in Bloomsbury, Virginia Woolf's stomping ground. I should be happy I'm alive, but I feel lost. Like, what was that all for? Now what? And so he did what we always did. Talk about music, about the latest records we were listening to and bands that we'd seen. Ian liked to walk to process things. Sometimes he'd walk 17 miles across London listening to music, his backpack laden with supplies as if he was still in the army. It's how I learnt that drum and bass titan Sly and Robbie had played on Grace Jones's album Nightclubbing. He walked solitary with intention, like the time he crossed Iceland alone on foot. The day he called me to tell me the cancer had come back, I was sitting by the kitchen window, looking down on the street below. Why don't you come and live with me? I suggested. We can play music together, jam in the living room like old times. It'll be great. And so that's what he did. Although in reality, we played very little music. We still talked about it. That's who we were. But we talked about bigger things, like climbing mountains. One morning, I walked into the kitchen, groggy from sleep, about to make coffee. Ian was fully dressed and wide awake. You look like a kitten, Mo, who can't open their eyes. I laughed, half grunting something. I can't remember what. I think I want to climb Everest, he said. I've always wanted to do it and I'll raise money for Macmillan Cancer Trust. Many people thought he was mad, irresponsible, reckless, putting himself and others in danger. His doctor told him in as many words. Some friends were scared he'd die on the climb and no insurance company would insure him. After all, he was a man with cancer. The person leading the expedition reluctantly agreed to let him be part of his team, but with the understanding that the risk was entirely Ian's own. I thought he was amazing, wild, crazy and amazing, the first man with cancer to attempt to climb Mount Everest. And so, early April 2017, I hugged Ian goodbye, properly this time, with his whole body. See you in June, toots. Get after it.
5th of April 2017, 7.31am. I'm still alive, yay! Just had a brutal five days, my legs and feet are falling off. People trekking to Everest Base Camp at just above 5,000 metres usually take between 12 to 19 days to get to 5,000 metres. I've just done it in three days. I pushed myself to the edge to get there and I've had to race back as fast as I can to catch my plane tomorrow at Lukla. I can't remember when I was so physically and mentally drained and tested. It's got to be when I crossed Iceland, but it's all part of the process. Back to Kathmandu tomorrow and the madness. Got lots of critical bits and pieces to get before I set off for Tibet on the 8th. 14th of April 2017, 9.49am. At base camp, been ill again. I was laughing though. I was out in the dark, half naked for a couple of hours being ill. A fantastic way to get used to the minus 15 temperature. Kisses. 17th of April 2017, 7.27am. Happy Easter Momo. Sending love from Tibet. Kiss, kiss, kiss. And so the messages went, every week or so, I'd receive updates. 16th of May 2017, 4.59pm. Hello Mo, I'm leaving for the summit tomorrow, just thought I'd let you know lass. It will take me seven days to get up there from here, I'll be back in nine to ten days. You take care lass, see you in a bit, kiss kiss. I counted down the days, the 26th of May came and went, no news. Had he reached the summit? I waited. 30th of May 2017, 9.55am. Just got back to base camp. Heavy news. Here's the news. My tent was destroyed at 5 to 6 a.m. at Camp 2 in 100 mile an hour winds. I lost everything except oxygen, belt, crampons, axe and backpack. Went to another tent, but by 3 p.m. all tents were on verge of annihilation. So we had to emergency evac down to Camp 1 over rocky ground and snow in dangerous high winds. It was 50-50 life or death. Everyone thought the worst. Over the next few hours, we all got down safely, although one guy had snow blindness and had frostbite in both hands. I still wanted another shot though. I wanted to go back up, so I begged and borrowed kit from others to try again. So five of us had a rest day, then we went back for another try in a small window on the 27th of May, the last try of the season. The climb to Camp 2 was hideous in strong winds and I couldn't give any more when I got there. Climb to Camp 3 was in bad weather, had to pass the body of a poor faller who had died a couple of weeks ago. Not nice. The weather on Camp 3 was shot when we arrived at 4pm. By 1am we were setting off in the dark for a summit push. The climb was tough, very scary, but I was in the zone and kept pushing. I got to the summit in snowstorms at 9am. Yay! We knew a big storm was coming in. Heavy snow messed us up on the descent and it took me and two others about 11 hours to get down as the mountain was totally different on the way down. My water bottle had leaked on my duvet suit, a full litre, so I had no water for the descent and a freezing wet down suit. We all had severe hypothermia, exhaustion, dehydration etc and we were an incoherent mess. We were very lucky to get off the mountain alive. Next morning, had to evacuate mountain because of massive storm coming in. I couldn't see anything, probably snow blindness. Made my way down to Camp 2, blind, with a Sherpa, fell a lot. I hadn't really eaten or drunk anything for a day now. Made my way through hideous winds down to Camp 1. 
I collapsed there. Had some quick food, set off in the dark down to advanced base camp, got there at 1am, still mostly blind and exhausted. I can't remember anything about the last two hours as I was hypoglycemic. Still can't see properly now, but I made it. 30th of May, 2017, 10.20am. Ah! I exclaimed, tornado emoji, dancing woman emoji, champagne emoji. This is amazing! I've been having a dance party in the flat, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. I am so flipping proud of you, exclamation mark. What a privilege to watch history being made in front of my eyes. What a privilege to watch you have an idea and realise it only in a matter of months, exclamation mark. I am so incredibly proud of you, exclamation mark, fist bump emoji. We will be having celebratory avocados when you get back. Lots of love. Kisses. We talked about what he'd eat when he came back. Avocado and toast, the best pizza and hamburger. Mediterranean nibble food in the kitchen with Mo. After he came back from Everest and the initial elation of such an achievement had lulled, the TV and radio interviews and the congratulatory phone calls had stopped, Ian slept a lot. I would wake up, go about my day, and he would emerge from his room as I was going to bed. It's been really tough since I've been back, not sure what to do next. I haven't felt this down before, he admitted, after I made us go and eat that burger he'd daydreamed of eating in Everest. He barely touched it. I've no appetite. He'd been talking about pain in his back and having difficulty breathing. Sometimes he could barely stand. He would come into the kitchen, bent over, clinging onto the door handle to prop himself up. I'm fine, Mo, he would say. No, you're not, Toots. I think you need to go and see your doctor. No, it's nothing, Mo. I just need to stretch, he'd say, or some other excuse. But Toots was a strong man who knew his limits better than any of us. After all, he had just climbed an 8,848-metre colossus with cancer. But it was when he stopped laughing I knew everything had changed. I was struggling with his subdued moods, the acrid smell of sickness that came from his room, the curtains always drawn, the windows always shut. I felt guilty for my selfish discomfort, so I would avoid him, keep conversation short, until one day he called out with a quiet voice from his bedroom. Come and sit on the bed, Mo. He tapped the empty spot by his bed and took my hand. We haven't spoken properly in ages. I know, I said, avoiding eye contact. I need help. I don't know what to do, he said. From a man as fiercely proud and independent as he, it was the bravest thing he'd ever done. I tried not to cry. And so I reached out to friends, finally free to tell them what was really going on. They rallied around, bringing food, changing bedsheets, drawing back curtains, opening windows, trying to reason with him to go to the hospital. 
they finally convinced him a few weeks after we celebrated his 49th birthday in November. He went into hospital and never left. The cancer had spread to his liver and spine, that's why he could barely stand. He would have been in constant agony, but I think he was fighting for himself and ever the soldier also trying to protect me. There's a quietness in hospices that's unsettling. It's not a stillness, it's that weighty feeling of people waiting to die. We tiptoe so as not to disturb, we speak in hushed voices. That evening, it was just me and Toots alone in his room. A peace had descended. It was a Wednesday. I'm ready to go now, he said. I need something beautiful. Can you find some pictures of mountains? I googled mountains on his laptop. Having something to do was a welcome distraction. I want you to be happy, he said. I felt the tears come, trying to smile through them. Promise me you'll do your music. Yes, Toots. Promise me more. Just get after it. Go for it. Yes, Toots, I said, and I knew that that yes was a promise. I like to say that in a band, the bass and drums are like vital organs. Drums are the heartbeat, the bass, the lungs. They work in synergy with each other. On January the 18th, 2018, five of us sat around Ian's bed as the air quietly left his lungs. We also lost our breath. The entrance music at his funeral was Jimi Hendrix's Voodoo Child. It made me weep and laugh in equal measure. So Ian, so Toots, wild, rebellious, funny and full of rage. That May, to mark his Everest summit around the same time the previous year, a group of us climbed the UK's highest peak, Scotland's Ben Nevis, in Ian's honour. We took his ashes and stood at the summit of the mountain, releasing his body to the wind, Hendrix's voodoo child playing on a little speaker. I remember a bird came and sat on the ledge on the precipice of the expanse in front of us. He was never meant for the earth. This mountain man, this wild man, was made for the sky. I think I was always interested in it since I was a young age. I was always interested in uh, the history of that, history of Antarctic and things like that. And then, um, you know, I'd done climbing before, climbed in the Himalayas, and I was always like, you know, I'll do that in, a, in a two or three years, I'll do another climb first, but life sometimes has a, a different plan for you. And uh, as soon as that happened, I had all that stuff. And then it was when I was diagnosed the second time, I, I, from nowhere, walking down the street, it was like, you know what, I should go and do that now, and I should raise money for Macmillan Cancer Support. It really just came to you like a boulder out of the blue? I, it was about 10 metres away from my house, coming back from the shop. Hardly inspirational. But uh, yeah, it just came to me and then uh, I felt an excitement that I hadn't had in ages and went in and... So yeah, I wonder how it helped you deal with the reality of your cancer, knowing that you were training and looking forward to not only the, the hike and the walk, but raising money too. Yeah, I mean, it, it was a lot and uh, just raising the money and the pressure and even beforehand, I didn't really put this out, but I was turned down by 1,700 uh, insurance companies. I couldn't get any insurance for the climb. Um, I injured my knee a week before and couldn't stand it, uh, stand on it. 
Uh, the climbing company got cold feet maybe four days before I went out on the climb. So it was uh, even to just get there, I was just so happy and have a, have a shot at it. Where does that mental resilience come from, Ian? Do you know Where what? Do you find that strength? The funny thing is, I saw friends last Saturday night for the first time, probably since I've been back, and they were all saying how I had this resilience and this strength. And I'm like, I'm not that guy. And, you know, I've, I've had thousands of messages on social media saying, you know, um, inspirational and hero and stuff. And I think there's a lot more people much better at that than me. I'm, I'm just doing my thing. No, Ian, you are that guy. You climb Everest. <laughs> yeah. You've got cancer. You raise money. Yeah, what it's was, gone okay. What, yeah. I think for me personally, I probably had different reasons for doing it than others. So I had a bit more, uh, I, you know, I was more determined to get after it. And there are times when you think you can't go on, but I'd been prepared for that and I worked out quite a few mental strategies where. If I got to a point where I just I didn't fancy the next bit or I couldn't do it, I was just going to revert to this. And it worked really well for me. And to be honest, I don't think there was any part that really psyched me out, even, even the summit sort of thing. I, there was nothing going to stop me when I, when I was getting to that. So you got part. to the summit. Ed yeah. and Hillary said, uh, knock the, the bugger off. What yeah. were you thinking? Um, I was thinking, thank God for that. <laughs> you made it. Yeah, it's slightly different. And, um, but the, in the back of my mind as well, we, you know, sometimes you get to the top, well, you know, other people get to the top and there's a beautiful view. There was none of that for me. It was like 40 metres and uh, there was a storm coming in and I was very tired and uh, it turned into a bit of a nightmare getting down. It's usually five hours. It took us 10 hours. How worried were your friends and family? Um, well, you know, I'm an ex-soldier and I always go and do weird things. I walked across Iceland before on my own. So I think they're worried, but they, uh, they keep it. They know I'm a bit of a, you know, a mad person, so they keep it inside. I hope you enjoyed that story. I found it very cathartic to write. Some people have asked me what it was like living with someone so ill. Of course there were times when it was really hard, but I can honestly say to you that thus far it has been one of the greatest privileges of my life. Ian was a man who lived, I mean really lived, and he inspired me to do the same. He was so incredibly supportive of me and my music at a time when I needed it the most. His was a life well lived, even if it was short, and to watch him go after his dreams with such determination and focus was incredible to behold. When I think of him, which is almost daily, it is very rarely the sick man in the hospital bed. Instead, it is the man that made me laugh a lot. Our mutually stupid sense of humour is something I cherish the most, and I'm so grateful that because of music, we found each other. My grandma used to say that good friends are better than pocket money, and what a find he was. If you'd like to support the work I'm doing with the podcast, you'll see a donate link in the blurb below. Please also share, like, subscribe to the podcast on the SoundCloud and Insta platforms at Holding Up The Ladder, hashtag H-U-T-L. Next week, we'll be back to our usual format where I'll be interviewing multidisciplinary artist Thomas J. Price. The, the, the figures that I do, you know, the reason I, I, I take cues from sort of ancient Western um, art, so the work of the Greeks, and uh, then relating obviously to the Romans he took from that, um, is because that's what's been, you know, what's become the de facto, the go-to uh, visual language for portraying, you know, greatness or affluence or any kind of positive characteristic. Um, you know, people always talk about the classics and, you know, go to eat and all of these good, you know, colleges and, uh, you know, they're always referencing the classics. So I wanted to crack into that world, but, you know, subvert it in the sense where I would include myself without any apology. Until next time. <laughs>